So we're looking at John chapter 7 this morning. And I've enjoyed reading the scriptures again to each of you as we begin the sermon. Finally reaching a place where I felt like I could do that. But in the Lord's sovereign hand, I don't understand why. Today my eyes won't do that. They won't let me read it to you. So Amy has graciously agreed at literally the last second to come up and read John chapter 7, 1 through 13 to us so that I can then proclaim to you what I see and understand from it as a result of my spending time with the Father, asking him to explain it to me. All right, Amy, please. I guess I need a little more humbling this week. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we don't always understand why you do the things you do and why you do them when you do them. Obviously, Jesus' brothers didn't understand what's going on here in this moment and John tells us it's from their unbelief, but we don't understand sometimes either, even though we believe. And Lord, uh, right now here in this moment, in this time, we stand, each of us here, in the moment that we live in, both as a community, as a culture and society, as well as as a nation. But while we stand here living in the moment we live in communally as a community and a family of God, we also live in it in the individual moment of what's been happening to each of us this week, which is not the same that's been happening to everybody else. We don't understand what's going on sometimes and why you're doing what you're doing in this moment. But Lord, we, we humbly sit ourselves at your feet at this moment, believing that every promise of your word is true and that even when we don't understand what you're doing, we can trust you. So we ask, Lord, that you would just open our eyes to see what it is you're doing, both in our lives and in this passage of Scripture. And we ask, Lord, that you would just open our ears to hear the things you want us to hear this morning and then open our hearts to receive it, even if it's a hard thing to hear. And we just praise you for your goodness, Father. We praise you for your mercy and your love. And I ask that you would just cause your spirit to be upon me in such a way that I only say the words you want heard this morning. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at chapter 7 in this first 13 verses, it's, it's different. It isn't just, I mean, you know, the chapter and verses are somewhat arbitrary. You know, John, when he sat down and wrote the Gospel of John, he didn't sit down and write chapter 6 and put verse numbers there in his little papyrus as he was writing it. You know, the chapter and verse numbers were added many centuries later by individual, an individual uh, just to make it easier for us to all get to the same spot in our Bibles when we need to look at it. But they're not completely random in that they were chosen for in an attempt to try and keep things together that needed to be together. And they did pretty good at separating chapter 6 and 7 because this is, these two chapters are different. Everything that we've learned about Jesus and who he is in chapter 6 is just very different from everything we're going to learn in chapter 7. Not that they're contradictory or that they're not true, not that at all. It's just really different. But one thing that is true, as we will see going through this chapter, and as I've mentioned before, the, the conflict between Jesus and others just continues to grow. And even this introductory section with this short little paragraph about Jesus and his brothers and going to the feast, no, I'm not going, you go without me, is a microcosm of the whole conflict that just continues to build throughout the rest of the gospel. So as we look at this, the other thing that we have to realize is that chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 all go together as one piece. They're one narrative of one event. And so in essence, really these first few verses, these 13 verses that we're looking at today is really more like an introduction to the whole section of chapters 7 through 10. And so when John writes after this at the beginning of chapter 7, it doesn't necessarily really denote any kind of reference in time except that it occurred after the feeding of the 5,000 and after this conflict that occurred between Jesus and the people in the synagogue of Capernaum there in the second half of chapter 6. However, there is some elements that tell us about time, and we'll get to those in a minute. What is interesting is that John tells us that after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So what Jesus is doing here by John explaining this is Jesus is actually using the human political structure to avoid the Jews forcing him into a deadly confrontation until Jesus wanted it to happen. Jesus is in control of his destiny, and he doesn't have any issue whatsoever using the existing political structures to accomplish his goals on his timetable and not allow others. You see, Galilee was under the rule of Herod Antipas, right? And Judea was ruled by the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate. And because Pilate had no authority over Galilee, the Jewish leaders could not go into Galilee and have Jesus arrested. Nor could they just go and do it themselves. Well, they could, but then they would really have worse problems if they did. And because of their ethnic arrogance with Herod, they had no influence with him. So they'd really kind of back themselves into a corner that way. And Jesus, understanding all of this, 
in essence, he just used the politics of that day to exercise his control over his destiny and what he did and when he wanted to do it. I don't know how that strikes you, but it almost seems like Jesus used politics to get what he wanted when he wanted it. Ooh, that feels slimy. But it doesn't bother Jesus. It doesn't seem to bother him at all. And in fact, when we think it feels slimy, that's primarily because we see how slimy modern politics are, right? And the reality is, is that Herod Antipas in control of Galilee and Pontius Pilate was the prefect of Judea because God designed it that way on purpose. It wasn't a coincidence that those two rulers ruled these two different areas geographically and that one guy's authority didn't reach over into the others. It was on purpose so that Jesus could have what he needed to accomplish his purposes on his timetable, not someone else's. And in essence, we have to acknowledge that even Herod and Pilate were God's provisions for our Savior here on the earth. That really feels uncomfortable to think that those two bozos were God's provision for Jesus and his plan of salvation. But it was. And he did it and he used it. He just used them to accomplish his purposes. Then we have this whole confrontation between Jesus and his brothers about going up to the feast. And one thing we have to understand is Jesus refers to it as the feast. Well, the feast had become a generic term for the Feast of Tabernacles, which was also called the Feast of Booze. And it happened to also coincide with the beginning of the grape harvest in Israel. And so as a result of those two events and a celebration of the grape harvest had become a part of and included into the commemorating of God's provisions for his people in the wilderness period. So the Feast of Tabernacles was both the feast as it was intended to be under the Mosaic law to remember his provisions for them and caring for them in the wilderness. And then at the same time, it was also this joyful celebration of his provisions through the grape harvest because that's how you got wine and wine's a big deal to them and to this culture. And so the both ended up being just a part of the entire Feast of Tabernacles celebration over that eight-day period that it occurs. Oh, and the Feast of Tabernacles occurs six months after Passover. So all that little bit of white space between chapter 6, verse 71, and chapter 7, verse 1, represents six months of Jesus' life. And John tells us that he's for six months he's just kind of walking around Galilee and not going into Judea because he's not ready to have this confrontation with the Pharisees. And we know that chapter 6 occurs at Passover because John tells us that's when it occurs. And so there's been six months between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Six months of Jesus' life, it's just, well, what was Jesus doing? Don't know. He didn't say. Oh, wait a minute. John mentions at the end of his gospel that if all was written, which would include the six months that he doesn't talk about, 
there would be no library large enough to hold all the books. And so here we are with this section I mentioned. It really is chapters 7 through 10. The Look, every this is... This is part of the confusing thing sometimes. Look, I'm a very sequential thinker. I think in terms of sequences. One, two, three, four. A, B, C, D. And John ends chapter 6 at Passover and then doesn't record anything for six months of Jesus' life. And now... The next eight days, because the Feast of Tabernacle lasts for eight days, eight days, he spends seven, eight, nine, and ten writing about just eight days of Jesus' life. And that's just stunning to me that everything recorded in these next four chapters occurs in a period of eight days after he doesn't say anything about the previous six months. That's how important this Feast of Tabernacles is to understanding who this Jesus is. So important that he spends enough paper and ink to write four chapters describing the events over just eight days. But wait, there's more. It isn't really eight days. It's just four. Because Jesus doesn't start talking publicly until the middle of the feast. So for the first four days of the feast, Jesus is just hanging out in his disguise, not saying nothing to nobody, not revealing himself, just being silent. And so John spends four chapters to record four days worth of events in Jesus's life, in reality. That's how important this section is. And in fact, we can even look at this and understanding what the Feast of Tabernacles does. And we'll get into each of these as we walk through the different passages in the next several weeks. But there are five important aspects of commemorating the Feast of Tabernacles, which is highlighted in this section to show that Jesus is the Messiah. The first one is the river of water that comes from the rock. That comes at the end of chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, gets into the Jesus is the light of the world and Part of celebrating and commemorating the Feast of Tabernacles was this recognition of the light of God over the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderings and showing them and his light being with them day and night. And then those things are kind of obvious. And then there's some other subtle ones of commemorating tabernacles that occurred during that period that are less obvious. And this is God instructing his people. During the wilderness period, he doesn't just give the Mosaic law. He's having Moses and Aaron and the priest explain it and teach it to the people. And at times he's adding pieces to it or explaining what this part of the law is really about. And so what we see in these, in these next four chapters is Jesus is instructing the people at different times. And then the other one that's less obvious to us, if we were to go back and read through Deuteronomy and Exodus Uh, and some of Leviticus and Numbers, we would see that during this wilderness period that God is separating his people. He's separating out the true believers from those that are not really his people, the true unbelievers. And that's what's happening during this Feast of Tabernacle. You're seeing the crowd separate out from the unbelievers to the true believers. 
All that occurs over the next four chapters. And then in verses 3 through 7, here's Jesus talking to his brothers. You need to go to the feast. Look, you need to do this, Jesus. You need to quit hiding out in Galilee like you're scared of somebody and go to Jerusalem and do what you're supposed to do. Now, the question, I don't know what happens to you, but when I read this, I'm like, why are they so emphatic that he needs to do this? I mean, John says they don't even believe in him. So there's like, why are you even care if you don't believe? But why are they so emphatic that he needs, you got to get on the ball, Jesus. Do you see that kind of attitude and urgency in their voice? You get, Look here, you've been sitting around in Galilee for six months. Get with it. Why do they have that urgency? John explains it at the end of chapter six, and we just don't quite grasp it, I think. At least I didn't until this week. This six-month period between the end of chapter six and the beginning of chapter seven was a low point in Jesus' ministry. From a human perspective, it was a low point. Jesus was no longer the popular guy with all these numbers of disciples who followed him. In fact, John makes the point that a very large number stopped following him and the crowds who went to hear Jesus dwindled to a fraction of what they had been before this flesh-eating scandal that occurs in chapter 6. So when his brothers are making a statement to Jesus, his maternal brothers, it really is, from a human perspective, a wise statement and some sound advice. Look, it's been six months. You know, people are starting to forget, right? Handling scandals today is no different than it was in that day, to a large degree. What do you do? You just be quiet. You kind of hang out, kind of hang out and be quiet for a little while. Let it blow over. And then you start to rebuild. That's what the disciples, that's what Jesus' brothers are saying to him. Look, you screwed up with this flesh eating thing. It's over. It's been six months. Go down to Jerusalem and recrank, restart this thing. Get this thing back on track. And from Jesus' brother, brother's perspective, the Feast of Tabernacles was the time to rebuild Jesus' reputation and get the Jesus train back on track. I am firmly convinced they would have been a great old-fashioned held fire and brimstone set of Baptist preachers. Jesus' brothers. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's time for the Jesus train to come out of the station. So they really are giving him sound advice from a human perspective. Of course, the problem is that they were giving it to him, even though they didn't really believe him, which makes it kind of an edgy, wait a minute, are you making fun of me? Kind of situation. And that is the more common view. While there is true, there are a small, small, very small group of Bible scholars who look at it as though they're really trying to be helpful. The vast majority believes what the Bible actually says and that they didn't believe in him. And they weren't that interested in being helpful. And, and that these are just sarcastic jabs of unbelief at Jesus as the Messiah. They are the kinder, gentler forms of the mocking phrase that the Pharisees used at this crucifixion. If you are the Christ, show yourself and display your power. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Because 
oh, wait a second. This isn't just an, wait, this, oh, this isn't just a confrontation between Jesus and his brothers and their unbelief. Who's standing behind his brothers whispering in their ear? The one who wants to tempt Jesus every day. Never forget this, brothers and sisters. Every time we read something Jesus does in the scriptures, there's a temptation behind it to exercise his authority in an unbiblically or an un how do I say this? In a way that is not in keeping with what the father wants to do and the time that he wants to do it. And here's Satan just sort of quietly behind his brothers using them to tempt Jesus. Show yourself right now. Don't wait for the time that the father in heaven is picked. You are Jesus. Show them who you are today. Just like he did on top of the temple. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. And once again, he displays his control over his destiny and that he will not be coerced into anything before he chooses to do it. This is one of the more stunning things to me about Jesus is just how absolutely in control of his destiny he is. As one who wishes I was in control of my destiny and tries to exert my authority over my destiny often and it doesn't work, I'm amazed at how Jesus no, it's not my time and we're not going to play that game right now. Too often I take the bait. Jesus' words here are just blatantly obvious in that he's in control of his destiny, not his enemies, or the people will be in control of his destiny. Neither one. I will be in control of my destiny, no one else. However, in reality, this whole section of chapters 7 through 10 is showing that Jesus is in control of his destiny, often in miraculous ways. Is he in control of his destiny? We'll see at a certain point the crowd's ready to stone Jesus and he just sort of walks away and nobody sees him walk away. Where did he go? I don't know. I thought you had him. I thought you had him. Well, who's got him? Nobody's got him because it wasn't his time. But even now in this moment about it's your time, but it's not my time that Jesus has with his brothers in verse 6, Jesus is saying much more than we realize as modern Westerners. Because it's true that the plain sense meaning of these sentences are just what they say. Jesus' time to fully reveal himself is not now. That's absolutely true. However, we have to understand these statements that he makes to his brothers in the context of the whole narrative piece itself. And the whole interaction, including the sarcastic, edgy nature of the way his brothers said what they said to him. But understanding that context, we have to also understand the larger historical Jewish context of understanding of a man's time. See, in Jewish thought, each man had a purpose and a destiny. And there was a moment in time that was his time to fulfill his purpose and destiny. Now, it's true some people's destiny was greater and bigger and more significant from a human perspective than other people's. But nonetheless, every guy in Jewish culture had a destiny and a moment that was his time. Not exactly like Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame, but kind of. And then that whole idea of a man's destiny and a moment being his time is the backdrop and the underpinning foundation for this 
confrontation between Jesus and his brothers with, it's your time, but it's not my time. And you don't even have a time. This is what Jesus says. So within this understanding of destiny and purpose and a moment where it's his time, in essence, this was, it was a climactic moment for the man's destiny and the fruition of time and space and history and geography as his life existed. And Jesus is saying, I do have a moment that is my time, but this is not it. However, Jesus is also saying something more. In a cutting rebuke to his brothers, Jesus says to his brothers, they don't even have a moment that is their time. Not only is this not their moment, but because of their attitudes, they don't even have a moment now or in the future. Ouch. You're telling me I don't have a purpose, Jesus? The man you are right now as the brother of my mother? No, you don't. But we know from church history and from scripture that they do have a purpose. And they do have a moment that is their time, but they're very different men when that time and that moment occurs. Because they're no longer the brothers who don't believe. They're the brothers who do believe. They are the James who writes the book of James. And the other brothers who were leaders of the early church in the first century. And so in one sense, we could look at this and kind of go that Jesus gives it as good as he takes it. He has no problem giving this very sharp cutting rebuke to his brothers. And in essence, he's even exercising his authority in that moment with this cutting harsh rebuke. I mean, I really wish there was a way to communicate to you the harshness of these words of Jesus to his brothers. It's not just your time. You're so, you're so out of it, you don't even have a time. Then we finally get to verses 10 through 14, where Jesus is dealing, where we see Jesus going to the feast and hear what's happening with the crowd, right? And this central question just continues to hang in the air throughout this entire feast. Who is this Jesus? Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, right? And it tells us that Jesus goes secretly to the feast and he just keeps silent. And then in verse 14, John tells us it's the middle of the feast before Jesus starts speaking publicly. As I mentioned earlier, that means he was there silent for three to four days. Uh, What? Jesus is there in Jerusalem and he doesn't speak for three to four days of the feast. He doesn't reveal himself. He's not talking. Are you kidding? Jesus doesn't talk. He just shows up and keeps his mouth closed for the first four days. What? That doesn't sound like our Jesus. What? How does that work? But in his wisdom and complete control over his destiny, it's because he's not talking that the true belief system of the people is revealed. If he'd have showed up on the first day of the feast and started talking, 
this narrative would have gone extremely different. It would have been a very, very different event than what John records. But because he doesn't say anything for those first four days, we get to hear what the rest of the crowd is saying about Jesus. All of those people who are there in Jerusalem. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago in the middle of John chapter 6, I mentioned that from this point forward, Jesus is always dividing people. Well, now this division among the people comes to full expression. They are actually debating among themselves, is Jesus a good guy or a bad guy? Is he someone who is the prophet or is he someone who leads the people astray? And this question that is the opening question of the feast is a foreshadowing, an introductory question by John. Because according to the Mosaic law, if someone was a false teacher leading the people astray, he was to be stoned. And this is the heart of the problem. See, John opens this section of his gospel with this question, who is this Jesus? Is he a good person or is he a bad person? Is he a good teacher or does he lead the people astray? Should we listen to him or should we stone him? That's the question. Really, you want to get down to brass tacks or maybe brass knuckles? Is do we listen to him or do we stone him? That's the question. And so he opens this whole section of 7 through 10 with the question. And then he ends this section with the crowd's answer at the end of chapter 10 when they pick up stones to stone Jesus. Oh, that's an uncomfortable thought. This whole big crowd that's there in Jesus and some are saying he's the prophet and others are saying he's not. It it took four days. It took four days for the whole crowd to go to let's pick up stones and kill him. So what are we to do with all this? especially seeing how we haven't had a chance to really dive into the passages coming up over these next four days of chapter 7 through 10. I don't know about you, but there was more than I was wanting to chew. Felt like I'd, you ever built, you know, you ever taken that big chunk of dry pot roast and it just goes on and on and on. At moments, that's what I felt like as I was working through this. I'm like, I've bitten off more than I can chew here. So the the question of who is this Jesus that the crowd was trying to answer those four days of the feast is still the question that every person has to answer today. That's the first reality we have to come to terms with. Every human being who has lived or will live has to wrestle with this question and answer it. Who is this Jesus? Is he a good teacher that I should listen to? Or is he a bad teacher that, I sh- that leads the people astray and I should stone him? And the first place that each of us must answer it is in the plain sense of, is Jesus the Messiah or not? What do I believe about Jesus? That's the real heart of the question of who is Jesus is, what do you believe about Jesus? One answer leads to eternal life and the other answer leads to eternal death. He either is the Redeemer and Savior or he ain't. And if he ain't, you're definitely going to go to an unpleasant experience following him as a false messiah. 
But what if he is? What if he really is the Messiah? Then he gives us eternal life. Now I could spend the next hour going through all of the apologetics of why you should believe Jesus is the Messiah. But you've been reading the first six chapters of John with me over these past several months. And there ain't nothing I can tell you in apologetics that's more convincing than those first six and the next 14. The other thing we have to come to terms with is we have to keep answering that question every day. What do I believe about Jesus? Like within like a couple of minutes of getting out of the bed each day, I have to answer that question. What do I believe about Jesus? Now, my goal is that I don't really have to deal with that question until I've had my first cup of coffee. But sometimes I don't get to go that far into the day before I've got to answer that question. What do I believe about Jesus? And what I mean by that is for those of us who just choose to follow Jesus, who see he really is the Messiah, who just like our eyes are open and our ears are open and we hear it, we see it and we believe it. For those of us who follow Jesus each day, we have to ask who we believe he is. Is he everything he says he is? And do I believe it enough to live it like I believe it today? I don't know what that's like for you, but there are some days in every week where that's just really difficult to do. There are some days every week, like I told you last week, I wish I could string together seven days. Well, this is why. Because there's one day every week where believing he's really who he says he is, it's just hard to act like it. Whatever, where it's the lies, or somebody hurt my feelings, whatever, whatever the pressure point is, it's just not easy to believe Jesus is everything he says he is that day. And so I have to, well, the only way I can get there is through the power of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Through the power of the Spirit, I have to have this check moment where I go, wait, stop, what am I doing? And why am I doing it? And then come back to the truths of God's word, of his spirit, of his promises to me and the love that I've actually felt from him to find, go back to the truth about who he is, hit the reset button and start over with living the rest of that day like I really believe he's who he says he is. Also, I think it's really seems it just seems obvious to me that just as Jesus had a moment that was his time, so also do we as his followers have a moment that is our time. And what I mean by that is not just a moment where our earthly destiny and purpose on this earth meets our eternal destiny. That's absolutely true. But I'm talking about something more than that. It occurs at different times for of life for each person, though. This idea that the purpose God has for us, maybe in this moment or this season of life, comes to that fruition, to that moment where we fulfill our destiny in that moment. And we can, can also say and look at it, it occurs as multiple times over our lives, the course of our lives, right? Like someone could say that uh, this is my time as a minister of the gospel to stand up each Sunday morning and proclaim the hope of salvation in Jesus. 
And that's true, I think. And I certainly hope that that's true. If not, then what am I doing up here if it's not my time to do this? But at the same time, it's not like I never did this before I showed up at Castle Rock Baptist Church on February 13th, 2022. So these, these moments where, where it is our time occur multiple times over the course of our life. And just as Jesus used the political structures of Palestine to accomplish his purposes, to be sure that when his time was his time, it was really his time and not somebody else's time. So he does today. He still does. He still uses the political structures to accomplish what he wants. Look, do not think for one moment, not one millisecond, that anyone who has political power anywhere in the world is doing it apart from the will of our Father in heaven. Whoa. Just whoa. I put up with your sovereignty thing for a long time. But when you say that Mao and Pol Pot and Stalin were the tyrannous dictators according to God's will, you go too far preacher you need to back off and get your head out from between the place that's got no place being if you believe that your head's in the wrong place Uh, no my head's not in the wrong place because Isaiah says God says in Isaiah 44 and 45 I create darkness and I create light. I create calamity and non-calamity. He didn't say non-calamity. I just forgot the word. He does it all. Well, then what kind of sorry excuse for a God is he that he lets these guys? He actually, by his will, causes them to be the tyrannous, murderous dictators they are. Oh, did you forget that Stalin... And Mao and Pol Pot killed a whole bunch of Christians. People who said they believe in Jesus and that was his will. Yes, yes, that is correct. That was his will. It was his will for every one of the disciples. Nobody got out of this alive except John. He's the only one that died a natural death. You take all 12 disciples They were each killed by a murderous dictator, except for John. He's the only one that died of natural causes after a very long life. If that was his will for the 12, we got to be accepted. It's going to sometime be his will for the non-12. I don't like it either. I want this nice, sweet, clean, perfect God that's perfect, sweet, and clean according to my thinking. I want the Jesus I want, not the Jesus I get. And therein lies the problem of who you believe Jesus is. Do you believe he's this Jesus that allowed the 12 to suffer death at the hands of murderous tyrannists? Or do you believe he's someone else that couldn't stop it? 
Sorry, all that was a sidetrack. That wasn't actually a part of the sermon. But you got it anyway, because obviously we needed to hear that. The part that is here in this notes of mine is that he does this today, that not for one moment is there anyone anywhere who has political power apart from his will. And that even, even the evilest rulers are doing so as part of God using them to accomplish his plans. Look, Pontius Pilate was an, a kind of okay ruler, but he wasn't great. And Herod, oh, that dude was bad. He was really bad. Now, he wasn't the worst, but he was bad. There was very little good about Herod and the way he ruled Galilee. But God used him anyway, just like he used Pilate anyway. See, the challenge is, is we're always trying to draw conclusions about these evil events and evil things with an incomplete data set. All we have is what we know at the moment it happens or a few days afterwards or a couple of months afterwards. We don't have all the data. Imagine trying to make sense of the Holocaust in May of 1944. Any answers? Anybody got any solutions to that? You can't. It is literally, humanly, intellectually impossible to make sense of the Holocaust in May of 1944 with all that you know in May of 1944. But we get the privilege of making conclusions about the Holocaust in May of 2023. We see everything that occurred as a result of it. Like... God using that to accomplish his plan of the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in the Palestinian homeland. Here's one of the really uncomfortable facts and realities. Without the Holocaust of World War II under Hitler's domain, you're not going to have enough sympathy for the Jews to reestablish the homeland. It only occurs as a result of the intense sympathy and sorrow and in some cases embarrassment people felt at what happened to the Jews during World War II. And that's how God accomplishes the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. We just don't have a complete data set. We don't have a complete data set on all the things that happened this week. All of them. The problem is, is we want to draw conclusions with the incomplete data set that we do have. And just like always, if we have an incomplete data set, we're going to draw the wrong conclusions. And I did that this week. You would think, I mean, like I'm doing this this week. You would think that I would not jump to conclusions with an incomplete data set. But no, I did it anyway. It's another story for another time. 
The point is just, it is sufficient for you to understand that I did it anyway. Even in the middle of studying this and his sovereignty and his control over time and space, I did it anyway. And it's only by his mercy and his loving kindness that I was brought back to the truth that I, I'm still trying to draw conclusions with an incomplete data set from Thursday and Friday's events. Be patient and wait on his time to be your time. Your time to understand. The uncomfortable part is I got to wait in some cases till the end of time and be okay with waiting that long. And so do you. So what do we do with all this? I I gave you these four what ifs. What do we do with all this? We trust in Jesus. I mean, that's, I know that sounds cliche-ish and like really cheap and easy to throw out at the end of the sermon, but I got nothing better for you. Trust in Jesus. That's all I got. But that's enough. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you that you are enough and that trusting in you is enough. Even when we don't understand what's happening in the world around us or happening to ourselves. Thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to be our redeemer. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave us your body and your blood for new life and new hope. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell within us to carry us through these times we don't understand what's happening to us and why it's happening and to transform us into the kind of people that can trust you the way Jesus' brothers finally came to trust him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.